This is a TSN original podcast. Just a quick note for listeners, this podcast includes some adult language and subject matter. Steve Durbano was a National Hockey League star. He's now serving seven years in Joyceville Penitentiary because he turned to smuggling to support his habit. He played for eight NHL teams during his eight-year career, but his reputation as a hockey star didn't work against the customs men. I started getting traded from year to year, and I could see that my career was basically going downhill. And, you know, as I said, instead of becoming an alcoholic, or some guys become alcoholics, you know, I went the other route. I, I went to drugs. I decided to go down South America and buy it at the cheapest price and bring it back myself and support my habit. You gotta remember, there's a million people out there traveling around the world, and it's like not everybody's a drug smuggler. I figured, well, my face is just like any other face in the crowd. You know, who's gonna suspect me of carrying drugs? I'm just a tourist. Steve was one of the most notorious criminals in sports history. He'd make any top 10 list. His rap sheet would make even hardened criminals blush. Imagine it, a first-round draft pick and longtime pro hockey player turns to a life of crime to support a drug habit that began during his playing days. I ran across a long list of names of players who had their own personal struggles with substance abuse. In one article written in 1988 by Sports Illustrated, one of these players had the following endorsement from Wayne Gretzky. I think he's the best goaltender in the history of the NHL. He was talking about Grant Fuhr. Less than two years later, NHL president John Ziegler slapped Fuhr with a one-year suspension for conduct which he called dishonorable, prejudicial to, and against the welfare of the league in the game of hockey. While Durbano and Fuhr played in different eras and were a different caliber of player, one similarity stood out. And that was that on their rapid rise to fame, they were surrounded by people who may not have had their best interests at heart. You get too much money too soon, too much pressure too soon, you're not sure how to deal with it. So you turn to the wrong crowd to figure out how to deal with it. You get caught up in that kind of a crowd and it's hard to get out of. Once you're in, then you're stuck. 1971 was a year of firsts for Steve Durbano. By combing through a collection of newspaper articles and old interviews, I've been able to surmise that Steve Durbano probably began his career in pro hockey without having a problem with alcohol. And it doesn't seem as if he'd done any hard drugs. He was a hard-nosed junior hockey player whose sole focus was making it to the show. Steve succeeded in getting drafted into the National Hockey League, 13th overall by the New York Rangers. He signed with the club, but spent his first year in Omaha, where the Rangers farm team was based. Steve was making $9,000 a year, when a guy he knew gave him an opportunity to make over half his yearly salary by smuggling cocaine in from South America. So he went with them and learned the route, and that was that. Steve never revealed who introduced him to cocaine smuggling, but he didn't go back until his career ended nearly a decade later. But for the moment, let's jump back to the spring of 1972. New York was poised to make a deep playoff run, and Steve gets called up from Omaha. He wouldn't play for the Rangers, 
but he would get his first taste of cocaine when he was living in New York. But I mean, it's good. I mean, it ain't, it ain't been stepped on like no thousand times or nothing like that. It ain't been cut up no thousand times or nothing like that, man. Cocaine smuggling was, and is today, a lucrative business. Steve may not have been importing large quantities during his playing days, but he certainly did travel with it. In 1976, the NHL scheduled a set of exhibition games in Japan. The games ran at the same time as the playoffs did, so to avoid any issues, they chose some of the worst teams, two squads who didn't have a shot of being in the postseason, the Washington Capitals and the Kansas City Scouts. To put it in perspective just how bad the scouts were, here's Steve's take on what was then his new team. I was traded to Kansas City, which won one game in 44 that I was with that team. I was there their second year. That was the year we went the last 27 games of the season without a win. Was the worst team ever in the National Hockey League. So Steve and the scouts headed to the land of the rising sun to take part in a hockey display for Japan. Here's Chuck Arneson, his roommate, with his take on what happened on the trip. How would Steve travel and be, you know, go on these road trips with the substances that he had and not get caught? Well, that's a good question. I don't know if people would look any other way. Um, you know, who, nobody knows. I know we went on a trip to Japan and he left his uh, shaving kit on the plane and he came up to me and he was kind of confiding me a bit. I said, Arnie, I left my shaving kit on the plane. I said, well, somebody go get it. No, Arnie, I left my shaving kit on the plane. Clearly, Steve's shaving kit held more than just his toiletries. He was trying to tell me there's something in there, and if somebody picks it up, it's going to be problems for everybody. But we did, uh, we did get it off the plane, and he was okay. It was a sad exhibition of hockey in Japan. Steve also shot a puck at officials. And he threw an ice pack at a referee. Perhaps the drugs that he had brought to Japan had influenced his play on the ice. You know, he kept it pretty, uh, pretty close to the vest. He didn't flaunt what he was doing. I mean, everybody kind of knew it, but nobody, he didn't flaunt it, no. <laughs> Steve's cocaine craving was in full swing by that point. Well, that's the whole thing. Is, you know, you get, it's, it's a high. It's, uh, you get psychologically addicted to cocaine. It's a rush, you know, where you, you just totally go, you go into another world where, you know, you just, your ears ring and you buzz and, you know, especially when you inject it, then uh, you just, you're not here for maybe 20 minutes. As for the NHL's big road trip to Japan, the host nation may have preferred if they actually weren't there at all. A teammate of Steve's was quoted in the newspapers as saying, I think we set hockey back 10 years with that trip. Yeah, it was never a dull moment with Dribble. Steve was an inherent risk-taker, so it should not come as too big a shock that when he found himself without a job in pro hockey, that he would turn to drug smuggling as a way to make a living. Many people I've spoken to say that Steve started using cocaine more after a hand injury, but I wanted to speak with someone in his immediate family, and I had a tough time tracking anyone down, until I got hold of Steve's brother, John. How, um, how did you actually find me? <laughs> you don't mind me asking. I'll say this right now. John's been extremely helpful through this entire project. When I first asked about going to visit John and his father, his response caught me by surprise. Dad didn't know everything, okay? I mean, I know everything. <laughs> uh, 
pretty much escapes life. And he's kind of, uh, you know, is, is a little bit under an illusion about, you know, his his reason for getting involved in drugs. He, he, he thinks it's because of the broken hand issue. Right. Uh, you know, um, and I, you know, I, that, that might have been part of it, but it wasn't all of it, you know. And I, and I don't want to, I don't know whether I want to break his bubble. Coming up after the break, I go visit Steve's brother, John, and his father, Nick. Did you know there's a new way to get TSN? TSN Direct lets you stream all your favorite live sports and so much more. And it's all in stunning HD. All you need is internet. What are you waiting for? Go to tsn.ca slash subscribe. He was just a regular guy, you know, no different than I was as friends. I mean, you know, we, we kind of hung in the same circles and we were just, you know, normal, everyday kind of teenage kids growing up. I wanted to know why Steve went down the path that he did. What were his influences? And what were the circumstances that would create one of hockey's most infamous characters? I wanted a more complete understanding of who Steve was and what his motivations were. So I flew down to the Sunshine State, where Steve's brother John and his dad Nick have retired. Good morning. Welcome aboard Air Canada Express. My name is Demi, or Demi, and I'll be your in-charge flight attendant on your flight today to Jacksonville. So just pulling in into the subdivision gated community, but the doors are open for us. All right, we're here. Hi. How are we doing? Good. I'm Rick. John. Hey, John. Pleasure to meet you. Once I walked into the house, I noticed that his home backed onto a private golf course that only people in the neighborhood belonged to. Nick and John were warm and hospitable, but wasted no time. They invited me into their living room and proceeded to give me some rare and intimate insight into the why behind Steve's actions. Let me set up the scene for you. The Blues dropped Urbano from their club. He gets released, and for the first time in almost a decade, he finds himself on the outside looking in. His career was over. The game that had been his whole life since he learned to skate at age three, was taken away from him. Without a reason to stay in St. Louis, Steve and his wife Lisa moved back to Toronto. His brother John told me what happened next. When his career was over, he moved back in with me. He moved to my house, okay? And lived with me for about six months, him and his wife. Him and his, him and Lisa. Right. right. And then, um, and then they... Both went their separate ways. Could you see that coming? Well, you know, I think that the, the, the thing with her was is that the money w- was gone, you know, and she was a partier and she was, uh, you know, like to, to dress well and all the rest of it. And the money wasn't there. So it was only a matter of time 
before she checked out. Unfortunately for Steve, his addiction to cocaine did not end with his career. And now he needed to find a new way to support his drug habit. But what was the origin of this addiction? His father, Nick, helped me understand. His post-career life was marked by a couple unfortunate yeah. incidents, I mean, too. Well, well, first, he met some uh, the girl he wanted to marry, and she was she was a dopehead, so he, he got messing with it a little. But then when, when he got injured, medication then became part of his life. And so the dope was part of the part of the pain reliever, and that was it. This seemed all too familiar. I had recently done a story on another former NHL player who was given medication to help manage pain after surgery. That jump between the prescription medication and drugs of abuse seems yep. to be a pretty slippery. Yep, it's an easy trail. It's an easy cliff to fall off. You know, being in, in, in that in the, the professional, say they knew the the drug dealers and they knew where it's getting. You know, so was well, not a problem getting. And then, like to see with him, he w- he went to Columbia and got it, and they caught him. And he told me the story on that one. I had a bad feeling, like something was going to go wrong. I just had this feeling, and then I said, "Well, no, nothing's going to go wrong because, like you know, I haven't done any bad deals with anybody, and nobody's going to set me up." And I hit immigrations, and I got static at immigrations, and right away I just went, "Something's wrong here. Should not have any problems. I'm a Canadian citizen. I've got all the identification I need." And I'm going, immigration's giving me a hard time about my custom slip. So he gives me your pass. I picked up my card and I looked down in the very bottom and I got a check where I've never seen a check before. All the times I've come through customs. So I figured, gee, something's going on here. Two uh, cops come up to him and put their arm on and said, come, come with us. I went to walk to the second counter and I was called to the end and the doors closed behind me and everybody else following went right out to their cars. And I knew then it was, they were onto it. They took him into the room and started questioning. And they said, we know everything you've done when you were in Colombia, so tell us the story. And he wouldn't tell him. And from there, they custom agent behind me and one in front of me and two over there and uh, they did the search and searched everything, fully, everything. And then she turned around and said, oh, would you go with these gentlemen, please, into the strip area? So I proceeded into the strip area and I had a piece of gold I didn't declare in my pocket. And I said, you just got me. I said, I didn't declare this on my custom sheet. They said, take everything off, put everything up there on the counter. So I took everything off. And they picked up the one shoe and turned it over and they go, well, it looks normal and put it down. They picked up the other shoe and they looked at it. And the one fellow went, there's no stains, no, no foot stains inside so he pulled the leather back and he seen this area and he took a pen out he jabbed the pen into the area and pulled it out and he just goes what's this how did they know after the first time he was there he ran into this guy meets a guy here who was in trouble with the cops Steve had told him what he had done and told him that he was going to do it again. And he thinks that this guy went to the cops to get lesser sentence for his problem and turned him in. So they actually had pictures of Steve getting on the airplane to fly to South America. And then as soon as he came back, they knew when he was arriving and arrested him at that point in time. 
So the police were following him literally before he even oh, yeah. boarded the plane to go to South America. They knew, yeah. they knew what was, what was yeah. going to happen. Steve was hit with some serious charges. Importing and possession for the purpose of traffic. The trafficking. Steve's defense was methodical. He claimed that he was ignorant of his wrongdoing and that he was set up. I went to trial uh, denying that I knew anything about the drugs. See, I wouldn't admit at the time I was a user. If I say I'm a user, I'm automatically going to get seven years. According to reports, when Steve was confronted by law enforcement with the evidence, he said he was in South America for fun. And to explain away the cocaine in his shoes, well, he must have been the victim of a cruel joke that someone had played on him. Here's Steve explaining to a reporter how he spun his story at trial. I said I was set up. You know, I was down in South America, and I left the shoes in the shop to be stretched, and I was, wasn't supposed to come back to Canada right away. I was supposed to go to Jamaica, and this person knew somebody in Jamaica, and obviously they were going to steal the shoes off. This is your defense? That's, that's my story, yeah. A lie, though, Steve. Pardon? It's a lie, though. It's a, it was a lie, yeah. yeah. The prosecutor on the case was a man named David Stone, and he argued that this was Steve's opportunity to set himself up with one last big score. Steve had maintained his innocence throughout the process and was feeling pretty good about his chances. I thought I had them to the point where I thought I had them on a hung jury. One fella gave me a wink as he took off the front of the, the dock to go into the room to decide whether I was innocent or guilty. Must have been hard on you, you know, on Doreen, on John. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I, I was hard on all of us. When I found out, I told him, Steve, quit messing with that stuff. We knew that he was doing it, but we, we couldn't make him stop. I mean, how are you going to, you know, you can tell him, but that's all you can do. You can't find him. So you start doing more and more and more, and it's just, it becomes a circle. And then it's, then it's one day, it's like you wake up, you have to have it. You know, now you're psychologically addicted to cocaine. You have to have it. Again, this is one of the few clips of footage that exists of Steve Durbano. He's on the inside of Joyceville Penitentiary, telling a reporter named Jim Reed, in his own words, the true depth of his addiction. In terms of your cocaine habit, what uh, volume were you doing? I eventually got up to where I, I, I was doing $1,000 a day on the street, street cocaine thousand dollars a day how much is that in terms of the product in terms of the substance oh maybe a hundred injections every 24 hours a hundred injections you reached a point at which you could not afford to buy the drug on the street anymore right I couldn't afford to buy it not once my hockey career was over a drug expert quoted in the feature story tries to paint a picture of just how psychologically addicting cocaine is. That is a testimonial to the dangerousness of this drug, that it is so seductive in a sense, that it's so self-reinforcing in another sense, that people are unable to quit. The collateral damage that originated from Steve's addiction had finally caught up with him. Importers know that if caught, they face severe sentences. Still, they take the chance. I feel it's a harsh sentence, seven-year sentence for importing cocaine. Steve was found guilty, and as you just heard from him, he was given a seven-year jail term for importing cocaine. 
judge sentenced me right then and there. Told me that he was how lucky I was that I didn't get caught in the United States because of Mercury Morris. Just I would think he received a 15-year sentence. And uh, he yeah. said, you know, like if it happened in any other country, he said you maybe would have got a lot more time. He goes, I'm going to sentence you to seven years in the federal penitentiary. It was certainly not his first time importing cocaine into Canada, but it would be his last. Steve would later admit that he had gotten away with smuggling cocaine four times before he was finally caught. It's a long way from the National Hockey League to uh, uh, Joyceville uh, Penitentiary. It's a, it's a very long way. How it's do you feel about way. that? Well, nobody likes to be here. You know, I don't want to be here, but I don't have a choice. Uh, I've been sentenced to seven years. Um, I'm here and I'm trying to do it as easily as possible and get this thing behind me. Get back home and get on the street and resume my life as normally as possible. He had to endure two years of limbo between his arrest and his sentencing. And during that time, he split up with Lisa and found a new partner. He met Lenora and she gave him an ultimatum. It was her or the cocaine. And he chose her. He gave up cocaine but he admitted that he still did smoke marijuana, and he drank heavily. Steve had a child on the way with Lenora when he was ordered to report to the prison capital of Canada to pay his debt to society. Joyceville is changing physically for the worse, from a minimum to a medium security prison. And we see here how the treadmill quickens. Harder attitudes, tighter conditions, tougher criminals. When Durbano found himself locked inside of Joyceville, it was in the midst of a change at the institution. The clip you just heard was from 1976, and within the piece, a guard is quoted as saying, it's a criminal pool in there. First offenders have got to swim in it. They're lucky if they come out straight. The jail and the people locked inside it were getting worse. For most of the night, the inmates had taken control of the medium security penitentiary here. That TV news report was from 1987, a few years after he got out of prison. But make no mistake, the transformation at Joyceville was a stark one. I can remember sitting in that reception area, looking out the glass and seeing some of these guys going up and down the stairs and figuring, Jesus, is this where it all ends? Is somebody going to stick a knife in my back? Could have happened. Came close to it once. An incident happened where they thought I stole a piece of jewelry, and before they found out the true facts, uh, I took a beating and was out in the courtyard, took a hell of a beating. Nobody had a shank on them at the time. I probably would have been stabbed. When Steve was released from prison, he was approached by Pittsburgh-based journalist Bob Kravitz to give a personal account of just what happened to him after his hockey career ended. The circumstances behind their conversation is just about how you'd think it would go down with Steve. Can you describe the interview setting to me, what you remember about uh, about that day? You know, basically, we did a lot of bar hopping. <laughs> we hit a bar, get something to eat, hit a bar, hit another bar, get something to eat, hit a bar. I remember that I wasn't feeling completely comfortable with the idea of driving with him. That was an interesting night, and, you know, he's a big guy, and he could put it away. And I remember that I was struggling to keep up, but... Uh, he was very, very interesting. You know, I mean, clearly he was overjoyed to have his freedom back. Very, 
now and again, I remember you could see those flares of anger, uh, you know, because he did get set up, apparently, leaving uh, South America. But why did he do it? I mean, all of it. Why would you tell anyone that you're smuggling narcotics from South America? Was this just a personality trait that carried over from Steve's days as an NHL showman? His brother John told me how Steve used to feed off of the publicity he got for his wild outbursts. The notoriety and the celebrityism went to his head a little bit. He started to play on that and he figured, well, geez, if they like me at this level, how are they going to like me at this level? You know, and as a result, he just, he went over the top. In the next episode, Steve may be out of prison for his cocaine smuggling conviction, but it wouldn't be for long. He shifts his focus to a new criminal activity and finds himself face-to-face with the Vice Squad in southern Ontario. It was like a, a, a dating service. I guess some, some of them were, were prostitutes. Obviously, it was for the money. It was easier for him to market himself, unfortunately, in a criminal fashion. He thought the money was easier. And unfortunately, that's what happens when you, you think that your ass is going to jail <laughs> sooner or later. He was arrested again later for running an escort service in uh, southern Ontario. (laughs) That is the least shocking thing I've ever heard in my whole life. This story is reported and hosted by Rick Westhead. Senior producer for Durbano is David Crixt. Executive producer is Ken Bolden. The show was produced and edited by Sam Glisserman. Mixing and sound design by Sean Pattenden. Research, fact-checking, and locating guests for all interviews was done by Takia Singh and Emily Hanscamp. Our theme song was composed for us by Jonathan Gallant of Billy Talent. Show art and design by Vince Arnone and Eric Kirk. Website developed by Pete Stewart. Thanks to everyone who chose to share their stories about Steve with us. Nick and John Durbano, Lisa Ostrick, Chuck Arneson, Ken Linsman, Steve Shutt, Phil Roberto, Dale Talon, Karen Pappen, Dave Hansen, Dave Schultz, Jill Leger, Bob Kravitz, and Rosie DeMano. Special thanks to Matt Cade, Darren York, Corwin McCallum, Daniel Zekchevsky, Brett Mitchell, and Bruce Massoff for all their help on this project. Archival audio courtesy of W5, CTV, CHCH, the NHL, and the WHA. For more bonus content, head to tsn.ca slash There you can check out some vintage photos, a character list, and the entire credits for the show. Thanks for listening. 